You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 12, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome, I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson, to The Paradox. And if you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. If you're a new listener, I encourage you to go back and listen to some previous episodes. Check out the titles. There are a lot of really cool, interesting things we talked about in the past, and we'll refer to a couple of those in this episode today. I'd like to quickly take care of a little bit of housekeeping. I was informed in episode 10 where we discussed the FDA with Dr. Mary Ruart, and I interchangeably use the terms folate and folic acid, and they are not the same. So they are both nutritional components that are important, essential things for your body to work and run efficiently, but they are not the same. And so, mea culpa, this is why I try to forget most of my biochemistry and um, the Krebs cycle. Any of you are physician know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so I don't use it a lot in medicine, and so I apologize for getting that nutritional, uh, for the nutritional faux pas. Anyway, uh, again, I'd like to thank all of you who are supporters at patreon.com, my patron saints. Uh, you've done a lot in supporting me financially and making this podcast possible. It also provides some significant encouragement for me. Uh, At the Patreon site, even if you're not a subscriber, you can go and check out some bonus content. I actually have an advertisement that is now up in Phoenix, and you can go to the patreon.com slash the paradox, spelled the same way as the podcast, obviously. Uh, So go there and check it out, and if you're so inclined, I'd appreciate a little couple bucks you might send my way. And as always, at the Patreon site, all the money raised goes towards the production and promotion of the show. I did purchase some new software thanks to this, my supporters. And so not only does it provide great encouragement that I appreciate, it also provides tools to make the show better and a lot simpler for me. And so I've got a new audio system set up, which is going to work a lot better when I have remote uh, guest interviews. Uh, there's a little bit of a problem with the I think the bandwidth for just a second for Dr. Smith's interview today. But anyway, I don't think it'll bother you too much. The spirit of the interview is still maintained, and I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, Speaking of my guest, Dr. Keith Smith is an anesthesiologist, which is where every great story starts with an anesthesiologist. And Dr. Smith has a surgery center that he owns and runs, along with another anesthesiologist, out in Oklahoma City called the Surgery Center of Oklahoma at surgerycenterok.com. That's the great thing about being living in Oklahoma. Everything you just say, okay, and you sound great, right? You sound more legitimate, at least friendly. And uh, he runs a what I consider an orth- unorthodox clinic in that he uses only cash pay, doesn't have insurance contracts, and a truly revolutionary idea, he posts all his prices up front ahead of time when you decide to book your surgery. So you can say, hmm, I want to have shoulder surgery. It's this much. I want to have a one-level cervical fusion in my neck. It's this much, and uh, this has been a great way to save money because not only the 
prices posted, but they're significantly less than you pay if you're in most traditional hospital systems, uh, whether during their uh, whether they're outside their surgery centers or within their hospital. Anyway, it's much much less expensive, and people fly from not only on this in this country but also from around the world to get surgery. He has top-notch surgeons that he recruits from the Oklahoma City area. He's obviously benefits from a large metropolitan area. But anyway, he's able to run this clinic, and I think you'll find some great insights. And one of the things we really wanted to delve into today is why is insurance so expensive? I mean, I, I, I have never understood a couple key questions that I would get to during the, during the interview of why the premiums have gone up so dramatically I mean, they were already going up quite a bit before the adoption of the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, but they have certainly accelerated since then. And why is that? And so that's what we get into for a little bit. And then we find out about sort of how his clinic runs. But certainly to get to get into why is, that, why, why is things so expensive and how do we maybe fix that? And so we've gone to that a couple episodes, but we're going to talk about it a little bit more today. So I think you're going to find this a really interesting episode. Uh, please continue to support me at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the paradox. Uh, your support is very much appreciated. There's bonus uh, material there that you can access even if you're not a member, and there's some that if only if you're a member. Uh, I do have my new ad up that's running in Phoenix. Uh, shout out to my cousin Tim. Thanks so much for setting that up. And uh, Sky 7, their internet radio. So I guess check them out too. So without further ado, my great interview with Dr. Keith Smith from the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Enjoy. Hi, this is Dr. Eric Larson. I'm here with my friend, Dr. Keith Smith, who's the head of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Uh, and a little bit unusual in that this is a surgery center that does not take any third-party payers. And so it's basically just for cash pay. And so that's sort of how you've, I guess, made your become famous in the sense that you've been on Fox Business and Stossel and you've been a number of places because it's sort of an unusual sort of way of delivering healthcare in today's market. Yes, it's uh, unfortunately it is unusual, but it's becoming more commonplace. Right. And, and so today what I want to talk to you about, certainly interested in, in the way you run, you run your clinic um, it, again, because it is, it is unusual in that we don't, you don't use third party payers, either government payers or insurers. Uh, but also I want to talk about why healthcare is so, so dang expensive. And um, a lot of the other episodes we've talked about, we've, we've talked to some people with direct primary care, we've talked about the um, group purchasing organizations and some of, the, some of the aspects of how middlemen or sort of the heavily regulated industry makes it very difficult for people to get the, the care they need because of, um, well, basically just because of, the, uh, because of the, the regulatory standpoint and then the fact that these large healthcare systems it is to their advantage, I guess you'd say, to have the system operate the way it does. And we met a few years ago at, at a conference here in Michigan when you came down and spoke about your, your center and how to, you know, your experiences in setting it up and trying to get things off the ground, I guess. And one of the things that I found really interesting is where you made a comment that you were surprised, first of all, at how running a clinic was a lot less expensive than you thought it was going to be. Why don't you go into that and sort of what made you decide, I guess, what made you decide to, to launch a, a center that chose not to take any insurance, which is, for most providers, very risky, right? You've, you've lost your access to, you know, most of your customers in many ways. 
So what made you make that leap? And then when you did it, how did you, when you looked at the price and stuff, how, how did that sort of process play out as far as what you learned? Well, when we started the facility in 1997, uh, we actually did accept insurance. Uh, we happened to be out of network, uh, though, with all the carriers because they all hated us um, or they were <laughs> or they had their hands tied by the big hospital systems, uh, having been told not to contract with us. So we found ourselves uh, accepting insurance, but not not really having any insurance contracts. So we treated everyone out of network. And what distinguished us at the time was telling people exactly what they would owe us. So it just so happened that our price for an entire procedure was less than most people's out of network, uh, out of pocket. So our, our price was was going to render them a better out-of-pocket experience than if they stayed in network. Right. So that, that's how we started. Um, it was, and we've never been in network uh, with insurance companies because they, with, with one or two exceptions in our 21 years, I'll say that's true, but they, uh, many times the carriers are told by the big hospital systems not to contract with uh, facility A through X. Um, otherwise, our contract is not valid. And that and that's why I refer to the whole bunch of beasts as a cartel, uh, because that's basically how it works. We decided uh, to put our prices online uh, almost 10 years ago now. And that was a very, very good move for us. And interestingly, because we had no insurance contracts, there were no, there were no um, contractual strings that prevented us from doing so. Right. I think initially the most radical thing that we did was we decided we would never take a dime of money from the government and we still have it. And we also, we also decided that all of the middlemen and top heavy management was in all likelihood unnecessary. And we still don't have an administrator. You're looking at it. <laughs> our large facility. So my good friend Jack Brown um, in Coos Bay, Oregon, refers to what we have done as a disintermediation of the system where all of the unnecessary parts uh, and the middlemen, middlemen are gone. And, and that's really the answer to your first question is why, why is medical care so expensive in the United States? And it's because there are a lot of powerful people um, in the middle who really they render no value toward patient care, but they benefit from the charges and the prices being so high. Uh, and that by and large is the reason, along with all the favors they purchased from the goons in Washington, DC, that that is primarily the reason things are such a mess. Right. And so and I remember one of the stories you talked about when you when you came to the conference that really got me interested in. And so I think you know if you were if you were to envision the sort of system that we have today and like the way it should run, right? You have you have the patients that are off to the side and they're not and they're not engaged in the health in this in sort of the cost of the care, and so that obviously causes some distortions. But if you look at it, you imagine you have basically two players fighting each other, right? You've got the hospital systems, those providing the care. 
and the payers, right? And so that in in your mind, they should be competing in the sense that the people who are paying the insurance companies and the uh, you know the government payers, they should be looking in any way possible to keep costs low, right? And that the hospitals are looking to you know jack up prices to, to get as much as they can for any product. And so this is sort of like in a typical market. Now we obviously don't have a regular market because the people who are paying are not the ones involved in the transaction, right? Ultimately, um, or the ones at least receiving the services. But I think this the interesting thing with the story you told me is that you you had your prices and you knew what they were obviously, and so you go to insurance companies and some that were not even particularly large, and that they were incentivized to not even keep costs low, which seems really weird. I mean, I, we have, I, I imagine it's not unique here in Michigan. We have insurance carriers that are affiliated with hospitals. We have either the university system, we've got one here in Grand Rapids. I mean, they're all, there are lots of these systems that have their own hospitals too, right? So they have both, they're insuring, they're, they're pay, the payers and they're also the ones getting the payment. And so you can kind of imagine that those would have an incentive to not keep prices quite so low because for the obvious reason that, you know, they're the ones, they're the ones who are getting paid. So they don't want it, the prices too low, but for, for insurance systems that are totally unrelated to the healthcare system, why do they not have a huge incentive to keep prices low, right? To get the best price. Well, the, the insurance companies want the highest charges that they can find. Um, and they actually want prices to be high because the more money they pay out, the more adversely claims are affected for the buyer of their wares the next year. And the higher claims are, the higher the commissions are for those who peddle these products. So any insurance broker is paid by commission and the higher the premiums, the higher the commission. So, these brokerage houses are the boots on the ground that sell, you know, Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna. Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna, you would think that it's money in, money out, pocket the difference. Right. It's not that at all. It is, we, we like that money in and money out, but there are a lot of different ways to make money. One is to make sure that costs continue to escalate so that premiums escalate and so do the commissions for the people out selling their stuff. The other thing to keep in mind that most people don't know, if you take the government away as a payer of medical services, and they pay for about 50% of the medical services consumed in the country, so the system is half socialized, uh, to be perfectly honest. Sure. If you take the government away, the remaining 50% is paid for by self-funded companies up to about 80%. So about 80% of that remaining 50% is paid for by companies that are self-funded. And what that means, these are companies that don't, buy insurance, they actually pay the medical expenses for their employees, but they hire an outfit like Blue Cross or United or Cigna or Aetna many times to administer these claims. Right. So they basically talk the checkbook to Blue Cross and say, you know, this is our bank account, but you pay the bills. That's what self-funding is. So 
with self-funded companies, if they're presented a bill that's a hundred thousand dollars, and and it's it gets discounted, uh, Blue Cross or United Signet to the extent that those discounts are achieved. So the higher the initial charge, the more money off of a commission to achieve that discount the carrier will make. So that that's why they don't want anything to do with me. Uh, if I say a knee arthroscopy is $3,740, there's no opportunity for them to skim off of an artificial discount. So the, the insurance carriers don't really want um, reasonably priced medical services. They don't even want high-quality medical services. That's not really in their wheelhouse. It seems so weird. I mean, it's not what you expect, right? I mean, you expect them to – you would think that someone's going to come in and say, well, that's how Blue Cross operates, but I'm going to come in as insurance carrier, and I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I get – that in the marketplace, generally speaking, people are looking for the lowest price usually, right? I mean, there's certainly a quality aspect. You want to make sure you have access to the the physicians and networks that you, you know, hospital centers that you want. But that if you're going to save yourselves $80 a month in premiums, that's, you know, over, that's going to be almost $1,000 or something over a year, right? Or, yeah, uh, that people would choose your insurance over another. And so if you found places that's going to have lower prices, that you're going to have a competitive advantage over Aetna or whoever. So it, why is that still not, why does that not rule the, rule the roost here in this scenario? Well, there were a lot of insurance companies uh, before Obamacare came in and crushed them all. And now there are basically four. Okay. Uh, And so, Whenever you see, whenever you see a consolidation in an industry, um, that's when you know that that the government is involved and that the heavy hand of bribery in Washington D.C. is alive. <laughs> um, so, you know, the natural order of things are for just as you've indicated, new competitors to enter the marketplace when they recognize an opportunity, and the the deck is stacked so hard against the upstarts and the underdogs that they, they simply cannot enter the marketplace and compete with these gorillas that, that have figured out all sorts of ways to make lots of money other than providing what you and I would consider insurance. So the way you'd explain it, you say there that prior to the Affordable Care Act, there were certainly there were more insurance carriers, but I mean, they still had the same incentives at the time, but that because of the highly regulated nature of the insurance industry, of the healthcare industry, that it make, and with the addition of the Affordable Care Act, it certainly made it, it made it more difficult to even enter the market because, yeah, you might be able to find lower prices and somehow force that, but you, with all the regulatory, regulatory burdens you've got to cross, you can't make it, you can't make it work if you're a small, a small fry in the, right? You've got to have the, the army of lawyers and guys who are going to comb through the regulatory framework of medicine to try and stay alive. And you can't afford that if you're someone who's in, say, just a couple counties or something like that, right? You've got to be just gigantic to survive in this environment. Yeah. And, and the good news is, you know, the government never gets anything right. They always screw things up. And so they have given such a heavy hand to the insurance carriers and they got greedy 
and they jacked everyone's deductibles up so so high that they created millions of healthcare consumers. I would say very inadvertently, the prices we have listed online are many times less than people's deductibles now, particularly with the silly Obamacare plans. So just by virtue of granting these carriers a very heavy stacked hand, the government inadvertently created millions of cost-conscious consumers with sticker shock who are out shopping. And and they're out shopping. A lot of them are refusing to even buy these silly products and moving over to cost-sharing ministries. And, you know, now we've got an executive order that's going to allow us, you know, health association, health plans. Mm -hmm. And I would think, um, you know, if somebody was investing now, they would probably short uh, some of these healthcare stocks because I do believe they've overplayed their venture socialism sort of cronyism hand. Um, and I think, I think it's going to be pretty tough on them uh, going forward. Right. And I guess, I guess this explains something because, you know, when you look at the increase in premiums of Obamacare after it was implemented, I, I mean, the, the increase have been so significant. And I, I mean, I know as a provider, as an anesthesiologist, we're not charging significantly different price than we were when it's implementation. So I know the money's not coming to us. And, and I've, and I don't think the charges are, I mean, they're definitely going to the hospitals and that their systems may be a little bit more, but the increases have been far more than you'd expect from just adding a couple requirements. Right. I mean, I know they, they, there's the, you're not allowed to uh, prevent people who have preexisting conditions. There's the insured through age 26 uh, and those are the sort of the big ones. I mean, all the you know the we're going to cover all the wellness cares and all the, you know the wellness checkups and stuff like that. But that doesn't really account for the tremendous change in in premiums. I mean, the acceleration of the of the increase. It it only be explained by the fact that you're losing competitors in the marketplace, right? And I think you know that to what to your point that it's harder to be a small person in this market. And we've had a couple of insurance companies here in Michigan fail. I'm sure that's been the case all over the country, right? That there's they're less and less that are, and, and so that would explain why suddenly it's so much more expensive. And, and I agree with you in the sense that they have unintentionally sort of le- laid a, 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 a battlefield or I guess a, a, a field of play where they are going to lose now because they have created before there's just HSAs. It was not, it, it was not conceivable that you'd have, Lots of people shopping. I mean, you have what nine million people in the United States with HSAs out of three hundred and sixty million people, or whatever. And so that's a fairly small percentage. It's like three percent or something in the market. But now, because the deductibles are so huge, you've turned all these people into basically HSAs right now. Because now they're saying, "Well, I'm not going to hit my out-of-pocket maximum, which is thirty-seven thousand dollars for my family to get my, <laughs> my knee scope done." Right? I mean, I. It, it's uh, I mean, I know someone who's got a couple of kids and their out-of-pocket max was like $47,000. That's, I mean, that's with your premium and then their full deductible. And it, I mean, that's, you can't imagine unless something catastrophic happens to your family, which for most people it doesn't because your surgeries, I don't think you have any surgeries that that is that expensive. <laughs> no. Your price. I mean, if you get a lot of instrumentation maybe, but you can get kind of come close to half of that, I suppose. But um, yeah, you can look at, you can look at the stock values for some of these publicly traded health insurance vendors the day before Obamacare was passed and signed and the day after. 
And then when the Supreme Court challenge occurred that rested on the signature of John Roberts, you can look at the you can look at the price and value of their stocks the day before and the day after the Supreme Court announced its decision. Um, and that's where the money has gone. I mean, those stocks skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, and why wouldn't it? I mean, how would you like to sell something, the purchase of which is mandatory? Do you think that's a moneymaker? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's basically where they were um, in the stock following uh, John Roberts ruling soared for all of those publicly health, uh, publicly traded companies. So yeah, that's where the money went. Right. And so, um, so <clears throat> your private organization or company, I guess you'd say in Oklahoma, and I had a Dr. Mary Mass on in one of my earlier episodes, we talked about group purchasing organizations where uh, these, you know, they control 90% of the access for instrumentation and medications into the hospitals and their facilities. And so they have, again, I think this is one of those unintentional sort of con- unintended consequences of legislation from Congress that it that it set up this scenario where, especially as a healthcare um, industry, well, it became an industry, right? Instead of these charitable hospitals, it now becomes these large nonprofit, <laughs> but pretty much they're you know for profit institutions that are have uh, tax status, uh, so that they get these they get gigantic, and then they have these large contracts with GPOs. And so these GPOs get very big, and now they're some of the biggest healthcare corporations in the country, right? They're like the biggest of the top 10. I think most of them are either PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers, these, these uh, group purchasing organizations. So you're outside of the normal sort of purchasing of, of a large hospital system, for instance, right? Are you, are you still going through the, do you still have to go and contract with these GPOs for your instrumentation, say for your cervical spine, or do you going directly to manufacturers? How are you getting around all this stuff to, to cut, because I would think there'd be a lot of cost savings for you right there too, avoiding these, what previously were bulk purchasing organizations and now are sort of just jacking up the price. Yeah. Yeah. We just go directly to the manufacturers. Um, and, and I would caution you to claim that anything that comes out of DC is inadvertent uh, because that's <laughs> magnanimous. I mean, you're, you're, uh, you're magnanimous in assigning ignorance to them. Um, the only time I think that an action in Washington, D.C. is inadvertent is when it's in our favor. That <laughs> yeah. uh, any time that it's against us um, as individuals, it is, in my view, it's intentional until proven otherwise. I think the presence of the PBMs and the GPOs um, those are all very intentional uh, effects and consequences of legislation that is lying the pockets of both sides of members on both sides of the aisle. And that, that is not a mistake. And many of the things that are, that are really wrong uh, with the system in the United States are that lead to the high costs and high prices are, are because of legislation in DC that was bought and paid for. We don't we don't deal with GPOs. We buy directly from uh, the suppliers, and um, but you know some people do buy through GPOs because the GPOs many times use a market dominance to achieve better pricing, and mm-hmm. so it makes sense sometimes for people to purchase through GPOs. But you have to be really careful with all of the contracts because they're so restrictive that 
where, where you might receive one benefit through a GPO, you might be hamstrung in another area where you can't work directly with a supplier that wants to give you a better deal. So it, um, again, it's, it's a very cartelized industry and um, whether it's pharmaceuticals or it's GPOs or in the bigger picture, the, the scammer uh, PPOs along with the big, big hospital systems, it, it's very cartelized. There's not nearly enough market competition and that is intentional. Um, everything that is done uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, with the healthcare industry in mind, with very, very few exceptions, is meant to empower the cartel uh, and, to, and to make things really tough on people that are trying to buy medical services. Sure. Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree with you, right? When you look at the, the Safe Harbor Laws passed in 1987, that was clearly influenced heavily by the people who were going to benefit from that law at the time. I think probably it's, it's probably fair to say that the, the drug shortage that we're facing today were unintended consequences of that. I mean, you could say that that would be, if you were to be, if you're smart, you'd say, well, it's going to eliminate competition. You're going to really reduce all the flexibility you have within your, your market where suddenly you're only going to have a couple of people producing things. And if something happens like a hurricane or plant catches a fire or something, now suddenly you have massive, shortages of, of things that nowhere else in our economy do you find that you don't find, you know, like I made the example of my podcast, you don't, you don't find shortages of toothpaste because of a hurricane in Puerto Rico. You still have plenty of toilet paper and all kinds of other supplies. You may have a temporary shortage, which is possible, but even the, that shortage is only, you know, a couple of weeks or something at most, whereas we're having shortages of well over a year sometimes with some of these medications. I, I imagine in many ways you're, you're as affected by this as anyone else is, as far as getting your hands on local anesthetics and um, opioid medications and things like that. I mean, you can't, you're not immune to that because there are only so many people who are making it, whether you use a group purchasing organization or not, right? Right. And, and we're large enough um, that when we find supplies that we know we're going to need going forward, we hoard them. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say that, that we hoard that's uh, rational. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you know, and you know, the FDA uh, basically serves as the strong man uh, for big pharma. Um, you know, we used to use, I don't know if you're old enough to remember uh, just generic hyaluronidase as, a, as an add-on for many of the nerve blocks that we performed. And, you know, the company that made generic hyaluronidase was just put out of business. I mean, they were told by the FDA, you're done. And of course that left room for only one hyaluronidase manufacturer. And that was this genetically engineered hyaluronidase, which cost about a thousand times as much as the, as the other hyaluronidase. But you know, if you cost a thousand times more than your next competitor, you're not going to sell much unless you can have them killed. Right. So, so <laughs> You know, we, we see this kind of thing all the time. Um, you see, um, you know, these new regulations that come out from the FDA, and those are meant to hamstring or destroy competitors so that one manufacturer has the corner on the business. And invariably, you know, the head of the CDC or the head of the FDA winds up being the CEO of many of these companies that have benefited from these regulations. So, you know, we get all of our sailing from Puerto Rico. Well, you know, that whatever company is down there, and I know, you know, Big Pharma is big in Puerto Rico because you know, my understanding is they were all um, in, 
incentivized to locate their corporate offices and manufacturing in Puerto Rico in exchange paid no income tax. Right. Yeah. So that's why if you're in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and you're driving down the street, all the big name, big pharma companies are there. So if Puerto Rico gets wiped out, then yeah, you're right. Then we don't have normal saline and the regulations that are in place are such that a new competitor cannot emerge uh, quickly uh, to, to create or to alleviate the supply problems. It's a mess. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and with the, and with the restriction, you're talking about the group purchasing organizations, and the pharmacy benefit managers, you definitely have where you, if you're a hospital system, if you're looking to try and save money on it, there's a shortage of something like saline, let's say, and then you're trying to say, well, let's go around. You're, you're sacrificing your contract, right? You either there's that rebate or kickback or however you want to term it that you sacrifice by trying to save some money on saline. And so it, for one or two drugs or supplies, it never makes economic sense to go outside and to bust up your contract and sacrifice all that, that you've got. Right. And which slowly over time, it's why it took from you know 1987 till today. I mean, basically 20 years before we started having significant shortages of things because it takes a long time to get rid of those little guys who were making one or two drugs. And now the, the price to play is so ex- so extreme that you have to make 10 drugs or 20. And now the person who's real innovative making one or two things is out of the market and, and you get where, you know, we are today. So for what is the market like for the, for the instrumentation, for the, um, the implants and things like that? How has that, have you noticed any change in pricing and, uh, you know, ability to get these sorts of things after the Affordable Care Act? Did that that affect your, affect your center at all? We've actually seen the price of the uh, implants and hardware that we use here at our facility fall. Um, Part of that is that, unlike most facilities, I encourage multiple vendors uh, to, you know, throw their stuff on my desk and attach a price to it. I basically told our vendors that, you know, at the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, We've said, here's what we do and here's how much it is. And I expect the same of everyone that we work with. So, you know, if you've got a plate and screws or you have uh, cervical fusion hardware or uh, you have anchors that we're going to use in an orthopedic case or a cochlear implant or something like that, right. you just need to get a price for a cash buyer, keeping in mind that our buyers are cash buyers. So if your price is the one that runs the patient off, and you don't get to come back. Right. And then we have, you know, several people waiting in line, you know, who want to come into the surgery center of Oklahoma and, and, you know, have the surgeons use their stuff. So I, I think competition is a good thing. I, whenever I see a facility say, you know, we're just going to use one implant manufacturer and make the surgeons use that one, regardless of the preference. I think that's a mistake. Uh, I think the more competition, the better. Uh, anytime there's less competition, it, it's not a good thing. E- even if you get a better price overall with a with a promise of volume purchases, you limit the preferences of the surgeons. And then, you know, what do you do when the FDA shuts that company down right. in favor of one of the ones you rejected? So we we see a very healthy comp- competition amongst the implant vendors and, and I encourage that. And I would say our trend pricing here is down. So, cause that's always the argument here. Like I know in my hospital, I'm sure many hospitals around is that they, 
by making these exclusive contracts, you're going to guarantee lower prices, right? Because you're going to say, well, if you if you just use our bovies or you just use our our uh, instrumentation for knee replacements and just you know Zimmer or Striker or whatever, that we're going to give you a really good deal because we we won't have any competition. And so your counter to that is just that it's it's not worth in the long run. If you might get a better price for a little bit, but it's certainly satisfaction for the surgeons significantly drops when you force everyone to use the same thing for one thing. Uh, and then at your center to go on a different track here, uh, you're a little bit different because most places will have um, you go in to see some specialists, at least this is what I hear when I talk to my surgical colleagues. Well, so-and-so is coming here to me for my sports medicine, my shoulder replacement, right? They're not, they're not just coming to anybody. They want to make sure they have me do it, which I totally, I completely understand because I wouldn't want just, you know, any hack doing it. But you're basically, your, your method is you're just using your, you're using your center's reputation as a reputation for the, the, your medical care, right? So you're saying, I'm going to only employ people who are, I have people come by who are really high quality, who are efficient and who are going to do a good job. So you know that if you come to the surgery center of Oklahoma, you're not getting some hack doing shoulder replacements, but I won't tell you exactly who it is who's going to be working on you. Is that, is that accurate or do people actually select who's, who does their surgery? Well, if someone um, selects a surgeon that I agree is appropriate for the job that they need done, then I'm, I'm perfectly okay with it. Um, I'm actually the last filter through which surgeon selection passes, though. Um, you know, we have, we have 31 orthopedists here. We have 105 surgeons on staff now. Wow. And, and of those 31, there, there are about six of them that make cruciate ligament reconstruction look like child's play. So those are the six guys that ought to be doing cruciate ligament reconstruction. Some of the other guys do it. Uh, but they're not as efficient and their outcomes are not quite as perfect. <laughs> you know, there's, so whenever somebody selects um, a more inefficient uh, person who doesn't do as many cruciate ligaments and their outcomes are not as good, then I will, I'll step in and redirect them. Most of the patients that contact the surgery center of Oklahoma though are looking for direction. It's the rare patient that says, well, I've consulted Dr. Google, and I believe this is the doctor who ought to be doing my knee surgery. And I'll respond to them and say, well, he is a hand surgeon. I mean, he, actually, <laughs> he doesn't even work on these anymore. You know, would you like, would you like for me to help you? So, um, yeah, we, I, I'm the last filter through which those referrals are made. And the surgeons here want it to be that way because – you know, they, their cases and procedures, they prefer to do other than, you know, instead of others. And I make sure they get a heavy load of that. Right. Yeah. They've done their hand fellowship or whatever. And they want it. They like shoulders. They like elbows or knees yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Right. Hips. Um, yeah. Because I, I think uh, as an anesthesiologist, we are pretty much a commodity workforce, right? I mean, people... I can count on my hand the number of times people have looked for a specific anesthesiologist to do their case. I mean, it, it happens, but it's usually someone who's like works in the recovery room or something like that, or some friend of a friend of a friend or something like that. But for the most part, we're commodity like radiologists. No one cares who reads their you know MRI film. 
And uh, so it's interesting that it's a sort of a different model, I guess, at the surgeon. But it's, do you just book the surgeons out a month in advance or something? Or how do they know when they're going to be operating so they, they block off time for, you know, surgery center Oklahoma? Yeah, well, every uh, surgeon has block time at our facility during the week. So okay. I know every Monday morning who's going to be here and every Tuesday afternoon, you know, which surgeon has block time. So they, they know that time's available uh, and then they, they put cases on and fill it up and go as late as they want. So that allows us for the patient that calls and needs something perhaps a little more urgently because of their own situation or because of their condition, we can add them on, you know, people, people ask, you know, what, what is your wait time? And I said, well, when did you eat last? <laughs> we, we don't really, we don't, because we blocked our schedule out, uh, we don't really have any wait times. Yeah. That's, that's hard. That's kind of hard to believe because it's such a different, it's a different paradigm from what, you know, I'm used to in the <laughs> hospital. I mean, it's totally different because, well, I guess I would just say it's different. And if anyone who goes to any place and tries to book surgery. So I'm sure by now, in fact, I know by now there's, you're not, you are no longer unique in the sense that you're just taking cash. I mean, certainly plastic surgeons, a number of ophthalmologists who do like LASIK surgery and stuff, they've, they've been outside, I guess you'd say the third party payer system for a while, but are, are there a lot more surgery centers like yours in, in the country you're aware of? Are there, are they starting to spring up? Do you think they become more frequent or what, what's your feel on sort of your model for healthcare? Yeah, our, our model is spreading. The best way to uh, put your finger on the pulse is to um, uh, investigate the Free Market Medical Association. And, and that that is the community of like-minded uh, folks who are interested in applying uh, principles of the free market to this um, to this industry. Um, it is it's a little slow. It's happening, and more and more facilities are embracing uh, these ideas. But it, it's a little slow because it's not new facilities and new bricks and mortar popping up. It's existing facilities that are that are transitioning to this model, and some of them have have transitioned a little bit. And some of them have transitioned completely. I don't think we actually know the true number of uh, facilities in the United States now that will actually give someone a cash price if they inquire, uh, because there are so many that are willing to do that, but they're not, so to speak, out of the closet doing it. Right. The reason, the reason they're not is they fear that they're going to jeopardize whatever insurance contracts they do have. And, and that's one thing that makes us unique. We, we don't have any insurance contracts, so I don't care what the carriers think about my prices. Um, and I think if a carrier came to me now and wanted to work with us, we would probably tell them no. Right. So, um, there, there are a number of facilities that are posting prices online um, and are you know, happily advertising that they've embraced this model. There are a lot of facilities that are... Um, being very quiet about it, but doing it nonetheless, partly because they're losing business to facilities like mine that will be honest with patients about what they're going to be charged. Right. And, um, and I think you know, to describe it a little bit better for the listeners. So when we're talking about this, if you're, if you're um, 
a provider of some sort of service, let's say you're, well, we'll say anesthesia, we may have eight different contracts with eight different insurance providers for different rates for anesthesia. And the same thing could be for any sort of any sort of surgery, right? That Aetna has a price for gallbladder at, at hospital. Another person, uh, you know, Cigna has a different price and Blue Cross Blue Shield has a different price. And so the risk, of course, of putting it online is like, well, that's not the price I'm paying. Or that's, or you feel obligated to put a price that's higher than those prices to make those insurance companies feel like they got a good deal, right? I mean, that's that's right. a risk of that's a risk of putting stuff online, and why people are hesitant to do that unless you've gone all the way, <laughs> where you've just said, you know, and and when it comes to the government payers, you can't, I believe, you know, you can't charge less than like Medicare, right? I mean, I think. If you Medicare price, if you accept Medicare Medicaid, that really changes right. the way your your pricing goes, and so That's it puts right. you at risk for all kinds of federal laws and going to and fines and things like that. So That's right. a big, big disincentive for that. So so what's ne- so your center is much larger than I think. I mean, I think at one time it was about three or four ORs. I know you're much larger now. How big are you now? Well, we have seven operating rooms. Um, we have two operating rooms that are under the roof that we never finished when we first uh, built the facility that we hope to build out someday. And that would, you know, that would give us nine uh, operating suites that I think would, um, would make a, a capacity of somewhere between 12 and 1500 cases a month. And, okay. and I think that would make us uh, probably one of the largest facilities in the country. Right. And, and you start getting to that point and you're almost getting inefficient in the sense that it's hard from a from a physical standpoint right to to have your pack you and and get and throughput and stuff like that i mean i think when you look at those outpatient centers they get to a certain point it's like it's almost too big and it's kind of cl- kind of clumsy i guess yeah our when we designed our facility uh, we designed the pack you uh, to be the largest room in the building and we did that intentionally uh, because just as you've said, that can be the bottleneck and typically is a bottleneck for a high volume facility. And the other, you know, the other bottleneck is the waiting room. So right. the two biggest rooms in our facility are the recovery room and the waiting room. So we kind of had that in mind uh, that we didn't want to uh, disadvantage our expansion uh, with bottlenecks. And I, I'm really I, you know, we comfortably do 750 cases here in a month now, uh, and I, I could see us easily doing a thousand or more a month uh, when when the demand reaches that place. I don't really think we'll have any trouble uh, moving that many people through here. And and we're not talking. So it's it's somewhat deceptive sometimes saying case numbers because you could say you could be doing you know 700 cataracts in a month, and that's like well each cataract takes 20 minutes, and you've got and you blow those people in and out of the facility pretty fast because there's minimal sedation. You're doing some big cases, right? You're doing like cervical fusions and you're doing joint replacements and stuff. So these are not cases that take 35 minutes. I mean, these are, some of these are pretty long. So that many cases, that volume is, I mean, it's pretty significant. I mean, you're doing some, you're doing some real surgery. Yeah, we do. We do a lot of general surgery and urology, air, nose and throat, spine, Joint replacements, um, cochlear implants. So we're doing you know, we're doing a lot of big cases. You know, we also do, you know, a fair number of short pediatric cases uh, with the ear, nose, and throat and ophthalmologists. Um, but we don't. You're right. We don't just do 
a bunch of pain management and cataracts, you know, that get your volume up. We don't, in fact, we don't do really any pain management here at all. So I'm going to give you um, a, an argument from a critic that you've never heard before. I'm joking, of course, right? So, this, <laughs> so they're, they're going to say, well, the reason Smith can have this surgery center, Dr. Smith's successful at the surgery center, is because he's taking all the good cases, right? He's leaving us with all the stuff. We're taking care of the really sick people. We're taking care of the people whose bowel blows up and they need a colostomy in the middle of the night. We're willing to take care of the guy who needs an appendectomy at two in the morning. Uh, the gallbladder, you know, is they're sick or there's someone who's septic. And so if he, if we, if we allow him to do all these cases that pay well and that you can get in and out, like having a, I shouldn't say assembly line, but you certainly have more efficiencies you can sort of build into this certain expectation of, of recovery that he's taking away. He's giving, he's making it harder for us to provide for the people who really, the hospital is designed for, right? The hospital is designed for people who, you know, really need help. How do you counter those people? Because I'm sure you've heard that argument a million times. Well, there are a couple of ways to counter it. Um, one is I, I always find that interesting when I hear that argument because that is exactly the condition that the hospitals have lobbied for in D.C. If, if a group of physicians wanted to open up a hospital and compete with these big hospital systems, they would run right smack into a bunch of legislators in Washington that said, you can't open that hospital. I, I find it ironic that um, you know, as much as many doctors that I know would like to come together and own a hospital so that they could provide 24-7 care, they can't do it. And, and many, many dollars have been spent to make absolutely certain that we can't do that. The second response is the one is a matter of context. Um, and I would ask, you know, to whom is that complaint being generated? Is it being generated to the buyers in the marketplace? Is it a whiny sort of complaining to the buyers that, you know, way and way it's not fair? And the response, the reason I ask that is that it, you know, since when is it the problem of the buyer that that a seller's inefficiencies uh, should be whined about? I mean, if you go if you go to a tire store, you're going to get new tires probably better and quicker than if you go to a full service auto dealership. Now, as the buyer, you could care less what overhead issues the full dealership has and why they can't compete with the tire store. So I always think it's important that when, when a big hospital registers a complaint, like you've said, I mean, who are they complaining to? Are they really complaining to the buyer? Because the buyers we see here are the very people that those big and efficient hospitals have run off. No one can afford the prices at these hospitals, and that's one reason they do come here. So we do take care of the poor and the people that cannot afford their prices. Um, but really, the inefficiency of the hospitals is uh, really should be no one's business but their own, uh, and they should they should deal with that on their own instead of 
instead of using that as, as an excuse to bankrupt everyone else to subsidize their bank, you know, their inefficiency. <laughs> well, that's a good answer. So <laughs> I, I think we'll have to wrap up, wrap up now. So if people want to get a hold of you or find out more about your, your surgery center, where, where should they be directed? Our uh, website here is uh, surgerycenterok.com. Um, and then I would encourage all the listeners to check out the Free Market Medical Association, fmma.org. Uh, and that there's a map there that will show where all of the like-minded uh, brotherhood exists, all the members <laughs> of the FMMA. Um, and that, that's the best way to get connected with us. And and I know you and your website too. You have a lot of you'll have occasional commentaries and things you'll be talking about current events and things like that on your, which is not supposed to happen in a medical, a medical uh, website, right? I mean, <laughs> you're, you're supposed to be kind of uh, apathetic about these things, except to, except when you're paying your lobbyist in in D.C. or in I guess Oklahoma City for you, right? Yeah, I, I do have a blog. Um, on our website that clearly says Dr. Smith's blog. And yeah, I do, I do comment. I, I would say the vast majority of my blogs uh, would fall under the category of um, medical economics, sure. uh, which is um, always impacted by the, the tyrants uh, in government at all levels. So um, we are, we are definitely apolitical uh, but we think freedom is a good idea. And and that's very threatening for for the people who don't think freedom is a good idea or who benefit from the tyranny. So yeah, I'm I'm I think uh, I'm unapologetic and, and outspoken and not you know not everybody agrees with me, but uh, I I'm also not asking for for anybody to subsidize us. We accept no government money. Uh, and so that our comments are, I think, consistent with that philosophy. Right. And, you know, you don't really care what people think as long as they come in with the green stuff, right? I mean, that's ultimately <laughs> how, most, how most businesses should run, right? I mean, that's the ultimate, the ultimate way of getting society to work together, right? You have the same common um, interests. Actually, we, we, we actually do care what people think because uh, while we, we have no interest in franchising, uh, we will, we help other people copy us. So we're actually trying to spread the news and, and show other surgeons, anesthesiologists, other hospitals, long-term uh, sustainable, better business, better for the patients. So we, we actually are trying to, trying to fan the movement. Right. And, and I have found that very interesting in talking to direct primary care people and to talk to you and some others that it, this sort of working outside the current paradigm, the way healthcare system works, everyone is, it's very collaborative, which is very unusual in, I don't think there are many businesses where you find people who are like, would help you become their competition, right? I mean, you're basically helping people to, to set up a, a center like yours in Portland, Maine or something, right? They, they may go online, put other prices and they they could potentially be competing against you. But it's, it's a philosophical battle as much as it is um, an economic one, right? So I would, I appreciate you taking the time to visit with me and my listeners, and I encourage them to go visit your website and to check out if, and certainly if, yeah, I, I like to say we, we'd, uh, 
we distinguish between our competitors and enemies. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's probably a very important distinction. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thanks again. And I hope you have a great day and continue your success. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>